Well, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, we're picking up. I started uh, this passage. We're actually going to read 7 through 16 again, um, but taking this passage in a few swings. Uh, I've called this message today, Gifts of the Ascended King, part 2, only because last week I called it Gifts of the Ascended King, part 1, and I felt obligated uh, to have a part two. It, it, it sort of is. I might have titled it uh, something differently. But last week, as you're turning to that passage, last week, if you were here, uh, number one, thank you for coming back. In spite of the fact that you were here, we, we got down into the weeds quite a bit last week as we were looking at the fact that Christ um, came to earth and died and he descended to the lowest depths. And we addressed uh, some uh, understandings of that language in the Apostles' Creed that he descended into hell. But we, we considered how he descended to the lowest depths and ascended to the highest heights as a victorious king, um, as, as, uh, as Paul quotes that psalm and pictures him as a victorious king returning up uh, the mountain to Jerusalem from battle. And he's got a, he's, he's got a victory parade. He's got a train of captives following behind him the spoils of war, and all of that. And we saw that while a high priority was being placed on the oneness of the church, you remember that from the earlier passage, all those ones, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, etc. One God and Father who is over all and in all. And all of those ones, while there's a great emphasis on that oneness of the church, he said... But he gave gifts to each of his people individually. This ascendant king, victorious Lord over everything, visible and invisible, heaven and earth and under the earth, that he gives kings individually to his people. And this morning's passage uh, really explains a little more the purpose of those gifts. So it's gifts of the ascended king, part two. We're looking at... Um, Ephesians 4, we're going to read verses 7 through 16 again, and I'm going to ask if you're able to stand out of reverence for the Word of God, submission to the authority with which He speaks, and attentiveness to His voice in the Scriptures. Hear the Word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we do thank you now, as always, for your word, that it is true and living, powerful and active, and we come with a whole range of needs, ways in which we need for your word to speak to us. You know what those are and what we need to hear, and so we pray that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. God, I pray as always you'd move me out of the way. Use my voice as your vessel, your instrument to communicate, to touch, to move your people for Christ's sake. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, some of the most beautiful buildings ever constructed took a lifetime or more to build. And many of them are places of worship, and not just Christian worship, but other religions as well. Great, magnificent structures that took a lifetime to build. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, uh, which I've not seen, uh, by the way, but took about 120 years to build. The Leaning Tower of Pisa, interestingly enough, took 199 years uh, it was actually interrupted for about a hundred of those uh, from, by wars and plagues and other things, but from start to finish, 199 years. There's one in progress right now you might, uh, might know or might not have known. In Barcelona, Spain, there is a cathedral being built that was started in 1882. Projected now to be finished in 2026. It will have been 144 years to build that, again, interrupted by a couple of world wars, civil wars, uh, plagues, you know, a couple of pandemics you throw in there and that kind of thing. But in the modern era, even, 144 years to build that one building. And that means in any of those projects and all the other ones you could think of, and there are numerous, but it means a worker could have spent his entire adult life working on one of those projects and died without seeing it completed. His whole, his whole adult life could have been spent working on a project that was unfinished when he died. And his life's work then would have been given to build a church that would be for everyone else but him, you might say. That even if he would have worshipped in that, that worker who died before it was completed, built it for everyone but himself. I thought that was a helpful way uh, to think about how the work of ministry builds up the body of Christ. That it is a life's effort, that it is selfless in the sense that our, our work is a contribution to other people, and... Uh, it's a work that will be unfinished at the time that we die. Assuming Christ hasn't come uh, before that time, I should, uh, in which case we wouldn't have died anyway. We would just be uh, called up to be with him. But when Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to a lifelong project of helping to build his church. When when Christ called you to himself, when you were the one 
who was dead in your trespasses and he made you alive, when you were the one who was far off and he brought you near, when you were an enemy and he made you a friend and a child and an heir, he, he called you to a project, a building project, uh, a lifelong project of helping to build his church. And even though when we die, the work will still be unfinished, I should say, not in, even though when we die, the work will still be unfinished. That is, it's a lifelong project, and we're going to die, and the project will be going on. But we're called to give ourselves to something that is other than ourselves, his church. The other uh, way in which this analogy is perhaps fitting is even when we uh, get to the end of our lives and we've contributed to this lifelong project, of building the church, the church here on earth, even when we've done all we can do, it'll still be like the Tower of Pisa, a little bit crooked, <laughs> right? A little bit bent out of shape. I really loved <laughs> that picture as um, the church, until Jesus comes back himself to finish the job, the bride will not be spotless. The church will not be blameless. The church will still have those people, including you and me. But Ephesians chapter 4, as he talks about the gifts that he gave to each one and the gifts to his church, um, they begin to tell us something about the, how the body of Christ is to be built. This lifelong project of building up his body, how is that? to take place. And I want to look at four uh, ways in which that transpires from verses 11 through 13, really, primarily. 14 is sort of a bridging verse to the ones we'll take up next week. But first of all, I want you to notice in verse 11 that Christ gives ministers to the church. And here's kind of how this outline will go. So you see it uh, understand how it's unfolded. Christ gives ministers, ministers equip the members, members build up the body, the body grows to unity and maturity. As I was thinking about that, it made me think of, you remember that story, uh, the little children's story, the house that Jack built. Uh, this is the dog that worried the cat, that chased the rat, that ate the malt, that lived in the house that Jack built, or whatever. It's uh, Christ gives the ministers who equip the members who build up the body that grows to unity and maturity. Number one, Christ gives ministers to the church. Many of us are quite aware, as I mentioned this week, of how the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each individual. And we, uh, I alluded to that last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in particular, in talking about spiritual gifts, it emphasizes there's one body, but to each one, each member is given gifts for the purpose of building up his body. Here, the gifts are really given to the church collectively, at least that's the way it's phrased. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. The gifts are ministers and their ministries. Of course, that does entail also his giving gifts uh, to those individuals for their ministry. That is, the, the apostles are gifted to be apostles and prophets gifted to be prophets and so on and so forth. But the, but the way this is phrased, he gives the church 
ministers. And to continue the analogy that I began with about this building, lifelong building project, Christ's ministers, we might say, are the foremen of the project. That is, they, they are not called to build the church. They're, they're called to oversee the building of the church. To ensure that the craftsmen, so to speak, have the resources they need to complete the work. Ministers are the foremen of the project overseeing the work of building his church. And I do want to just mention here as kind of a sidebar, uh, and I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but this is one of the things that it's a, it's a question or subject that's always raised in coming to this passage uh, of Scripture. And I think, again, for some in, in our congregation in particular, and the circles you've walked in and things you've heard and listened to, this might be worth addressing. But that is to say, this mention here of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is not given to us as a template for how the church is to be structured. These are not the offices of the church that we're somehow supposed to recover and structure the church around those five offices, especially the local church. You may have heard some people refer to this as the five-fold ministry. Uh, nothing really wrong with that, although I would suggest it's actually fourfold, not fivefold, because pastor and teacher really refers to uh, the same person, it would seem there grammatically. But, it, but it's not, this is not as if this is a model of church structure that the contemporary church is supposed to try to recover or replicate. And I say that for a few reasons. Again, this could be a, uh, a much longer discussion or study, and if you wish to have it, you can go do the study. Uh, but, uh, but, but I say that for a few reasons. Number one, in the New Testament, the... The word apostle, as it refers to an authoritative office, it refers to those individuals who were eyewitnesses of Christ and who were sent by Christ to speak on behalf of Christ, even the very words of Christ, so that they recorded uh, Scripture itself. And, and, the, and the New Testament, in referring to apostles as a title, it refers to those individuals who died and were not replaced as apostles. Uh, with the exception, of course, of Judas, who, uh, who, who didn't even live long enough to get started in the uh, apostolic ministry that they were called to. Now, I would say the, uh, the New Testament does use the word, the, the word apostle just means one cent, and, uh, and it will use the word in that respect too. Um, and we could say in that respect that a missionary church planter who, who is sent to a field that needs to hear the gospel and preaches the gospel and, and leads people to Christ and begins to assemble them together as a church and raises up uh, leaders you know, and uh, elders and pastors and that kind of thing in that church and, and moves on, you, you might say fairly that he has a sort of apostolic kind of gifting and ministry in the sense that he's sent. We don't use the word to apostle uh, to refer to that. Anyway, I could, I could go on um, about that, but the New Testament and the way it speaks of the apostles as uh, an office, or as those holding an office, speaks of those, that particular set of individuals 
who were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection and spoke on his behalf. The other thing I would say, and again, just in, in a very passing kind of way, is the next generation of leaders in the early church did not use the title of apostle. And the point being, if somebody were going to try to make the case that the office of apostle was supposed to continue in the life of a church, wouldn't it seem that those who were uh, taught by the apostles themselves would be the ones who would be raised up as apostles? But they weren't. And we have writings actually from some very early uh, church leaders, including a disciple of Paul himself, a disciple of, the, uh, of John, and um, who faced all kinds of uh, challenges with false teaching and that sort of thing throughout the church, it would have been to their advantage to say, hey, I'm an apostle and you listen to me. They didn't do that. Um, and if you were to read some of those uh, letters of uh, Clement and Ignatius, uh, I have in mind in particular, you'd see what I mean. But uh, again, I'm really not, I, I'm, I'm not trying to convince anybody um, who uh, is, is already convinced that there are still apostles. Because again, I know I was born at night, but not last night. And I know there's some arguments I'm just not going to win. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to lay uh, all that out to convince you, but just to say, um, he, th to, to think that we read verse 11 here and somehow that that gives us a template for how the church is to be structured is really to miss the point of this whole passage. Because what he's, what he's concerned about is the building up of the body. The one body of the church and the, and the gift that ministers are to that. Okay, enough of that. Christ gives ministers to the church. Number two, ministers equip the members. Ministers equip the ministers. This is part of the job as foremen of the project. It says in verse 12, he gave those ministers to equip the saints. Saints, uh, once again, just refers to those who are consecrated by God uh, through Jesus himself. That is, just those who are, who are believers in Jesus and have made, been made new through faith in him. That's what saints refers to. It's not talking about super Christians, just Christians generally. Well, I suppose the bottom line here is that ministers are not the hired help who do all the ministry work. You know, maybe you've had the experience, uh, maybe you've seen somebody do this, maybe even you've, uh, you've done this yourself, of being um, somewhere in public, maybe it's at a restaurant uh, or, or, you know, in school or, you know, these kinds of things where somebody makes a mess and doesn't clean up after themselves and will say, well, that's what the janitor's for. I don't know if you've, ever, you've I know you've never done that, but maybe you've heard somebody who said that. That is uh, infuriating to me. I'll mention in my own sinful imperfection. That is one of the things that would get under my skin. But somebody who just presumes in that way, there's hired help to take care of that. And there are people who think that way about the ministers in the church. They're, that's what we hired them for. That's what they do. That is not the way Christ ordained for his church to be built. They're not the hired help. You might say that ministers of the church are more like the cadre of leaders who equip soldiers for their military service. So beginning with the drill instructors, 
uh, right there in basic training, right? The people who go, who, who, who join the military and they go to Paris Island or Fort Benning or wherever they're going to go for their basic training and they, and, and, and they need basic training because they don't know anything, right? And they can't do anything. I may have told you before, I, I heard a former military recruiter tell me one time stories of the, 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 the young men that would come to her and uh, she would have to get them ready for basic training. And one young 18-year-old, she had to teach him how to tie his shoes because uh, his mama had always done that for him. And so mostly he just wore Velcro shoes until he was 18 years old. You need basic training. You need some pre-training before you even get to basic training in that case. But the point being, from, from that very place of knowing nothing, of being able to do nothing, there's a cadre of leaders in place to teach you what you need to know, maybe some hard lessons, but to lead you uh, to where it is you want to be and where they want you to be. So drill instructors, trainers, senior enlisted men, officers, and all that kind of stuff, from basic training to advanced individualized training to uh, ongoing drills routinely from week to week to specialty schools and so forth. Training, equipping those who are really charged with doing the, the work of soldiering, the, who really make up the military. We might say the job of ministers, the role of ministers, the reason Christ has given ministers, is for that sort of equipping. It's in a cadre of people uh, set apart to equip the saints. And so ministers preach and teach and demonstrate, model for people how certain things are to be done. They organize, serve, protect at times and guard the flock. They reprove, rebuke, and exhort, as Paul said to Timothy. And of course, if the church is fruitful, there will always be some who are infants in the faith, who need to be fed. There will always be, if the church is fruitful, there will always be those people who come to Christ like that person who can't even tie his shoes going to basic training. And they don't know anything at all. As I heard one pastor say uh, many years ago, you know, they don't know Job from Job and Psalms from Palms. Uh, and, and, and nothing, don't know anything about the Bible, don't know anything about the Christian faith, never heard any of it before. And so they need to be taught right where they are, fed milk, as the scripture says, as infants but not to live on it for the rest of their lives. They're to grow up and grow on. So Christ gives ministers to the church, ministers equip the members, and then members, number three, build up the body. That in the second part of verse 12 says they're, uh, the, the ministers equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Sort of a two, two-pronged uh, outworking of that. They equip them for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That work of ministry builds up the body, in other words. So we receive ministry. As, as believers in Jesus, we receive ministry. We are ministered to in order to become equipped to offer ministry. It's a lifelong project 
That's what it's intended to be. You never retire and collect a pension from building the body of Christ. We, we receive ministry in order to become equipped to offer ministry. This is often referred to as every member ministry. And I know many of you have heard, maybe almost all of you have heard this term, because this is uh, one of the things that's been at the heart of this church, I know, uh, for, for a long, long time. One of the reasons this church um, has in it so many grounded deeply rooted, godly, and mature Christians because the church has had that philosophy of equipping the saints for the work of ministry and not somebody else doing ministry always to or for other people, receiving in order to offer. Recall from Ephesians 2, as Jesus, uh, or as, as Paul was talking earlier about the work of Christ, that we're, we're building blocks in the dwelling place of of God, that, 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 that we as members are being built together into a dwelling place of God. He uses that language. And the whole structure, the whole structure is built up together. So as we are built up personally, we get to a place where we can help build others up. So the, 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 the question... Uh, shifts then when you think about even coming on a Sunday morning to church or even deciding not to come on a Sunday morning to church and maybe to quit coming all together. You know, there are a lot of people in a highly individualistic culture like the one we live in who think, how am I going to use this in my life? And many, many people have gotten to the point where they've just answered the question, well, I'm not. They're not telling me anything that's useful to me, and so I'm just going to check out. Maybe occasionally I'll peruse the internet and see what kind of things I can find that are helpful. Maybe it's from the church or maybe it's not. But if we understand that Christ called us to himself by his grace, gave ministers to the church to equip the members to build up the body, that that's our calling, to build up his body, for our lives to, lives to be given to a service to others and not ourselves. The question shifts from how am I going to use this in my life to how is this going to equip me to be useful in the lives of others. And I will tell you, loved ones, that is a paradigm shift that will radically change your life. That will radically change your life. If, you, if, if we were to stop thinking of how is this useful to me and start thinking, how is this going to equip me to be useful to others, specifically the others in Christ church? That'll change us, and it'll change the church. Number four, the way the body of Christ is to be built is uh, in, in doing all of those things that the body just grows uh, to unity and maturity. That it's nurtured to the point where it grows to unity and maturity. Of course, that uh, underscoring the goal, their two, twofold goal of attaining unity and maturity. There's a goal to it. And, and uh, the attaining of unity is also sort of twofold. We're, we're, we're to, to pursue that in two respects. You notice that in verse 13? Unity of the faith 
and unity of knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's, an, that, that's a really provocative phrase, and it'd be one of those, if, uh, if, if I were you, I'd be wanting to chew on that and go think about that some later. I have done some chewing and thinking about that, and I still kind of am, actually. He mentioned earlier in chapter 4 how we're to endeavor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. You remember that from that first message that the whole, uh, that, that all of those things are humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance are all aimed at maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the faith would be something similar to that. But it's quite intriguing to me that we're to uh, seek to attain also unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We need to know Him. And uh, very often, if you don't know what else to do in your life and you don't even know how to pray, you don't know what the next step is, knowing Him more is probably a fine answer. Right? Just, Just seeking to know Him more is almost always part of the remedy, at least. But of course, knowledge of the Son of God does involve, to some degree, knowledge about the Son of God. We have to know what is true of Him if we're to know Him more. And uh, that hints at the need for the church particularly any local church, to seek some unity in what it is we know and believe. That we seek some doctrinal unity. Now again, I I know this flies in the face of contemporary church. Not only are we highly individualistic in terms of uh, just all kinds of ways that we want to live our lives, but... uh, but, but there's just a, a general kind of scoffing at doctrine or the idea of doctrine and sound teaching and so forth. But I'd suggest we can't attain unity of the faith without some measure of unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Or another way of paraphrasing that would be we cannot attain brotherly unity without attaining a large measure of doctrinal unity. And I could ask if any feel like they've been around here long enough to know that that's true. I mean, have you been around long enough? You don't have to have been at Myrtle Grove. You could just be around the evangelical church, probably. But if you've been around Myrtle Grove, specifically, you know you, uh, uh, what it is to walk uh, sort of the, the, the path of faith in Christ with people who have very, very different understandings of who Jesus is, of what the New Testament teaches and so forth, doctrinally being all over the place. And you can't go in two different directions at the same time. You just can't do it. But convictions will lead you in one direction or the other. And so... You cannot maintain brotherly unity without a measure of doctrinal unity. We need to be seeking unity of the faith and unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And the, and the second goal of that pursuit of unity is, or, or rather that uh, growth, 
is to seek to attain maturity. You see that? Unity and maturity, that we would attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's another one of those that'll make you go, hmm. Another one of those that'll send you pondering uh, if you're one prone to ponder. (laughs) Uh, One of those that'll make you ponder for a long time. Especially given the fact that's quite a high standard to attain now, isn't isn't it? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That he is the standard. Christ is the ideal human being. And so, uh, just as somebody may, uh, you know, there, there may be a bodybuilder who uh, has a picture of what he wants his body to look like when he's finished with whatever process of working out over years long of how he wants to sculpt his body and he's got a picture of how that would turn out. I would say in a similar way, as we aspire to be better people, better humans, as we aspire to grow to maturity, Christ is the picture of what it is we are to become, of who it is we are to become. Now, I know that sounds, again, cliche to Christian people, but it's, uh, it's quite fascinating. I mean, I'm fascinated by my own self sometimes in these regards, but it's, it's fascinating how we can say that that's true and then turn around and um, desire some other standard, some other attainment, or even... To console ourselves, we'll say, at least I'm not like that guy. You know, to think I'm a good, I'm a good Christian, I'm a good person or whatever because I'm better than somebody else. You know, I'm so glad God didn't make me like the tax collectors and the sinners. Do you remember the Pharisees saying that? That is, that we make the standard somebody else who we think is a greater sinner than we are or a worse sinner, however you want to put it. Christ himself is the standard, and we are to grow to unity and maturity. As I said, there's never a time where we uh, just retire from serving Christ in the work of ministry. That we're, There's never a time where we retire from building up the body. There's never a time when we retire from growing into unity uh, and to maturity. And so I might close with just the questions that perhaps you're asking yourself already. How are you presently being equipped? You're here on Sunday morning. Thank you for that. You can fill in that blank. That's answer number one. (laughs) You're here, uh, many of you regularly on Sunday mornings, right? You're engaged in the life of the church. How else? How else are you being equipped for the work of ministry? Second question, how are you then engaging in the work of ministry? To be equipped for the work of ministry implies we're going to actually do the work of ministry. How are you engaging in the work of ministry? 
And number three, how is the body of Christ being built up by your contribution? What are you contributing in the lives of other people? And I really am principally concerned here, or I'm principally thinking about the people of the church, not the institution of the church. Although the two, the two of those overlap for sure, but it's not so much a question of uh, how, what programs are you involved in, what activities are you volunteering for, how are you being equipped, how are you engaging in the work of ministry, and how is the body of Christ, even in just the life of one person who's part of the body of Christ, how is the body of Christ being built up by your contribution Whatever the answers uh, to those questions might be, we should have answers. And the answers shouldn't, shouldn't be, although again, I understand uh, uh, any number of reasons why they might be, but that the, the answer shouldn't be, I'm not being equipped. I'm not engaging in the work of ministry. I'm not uh, contributing to the building up of the body of Christ. If that is the answer, uh, we need to go earnestly before the Lord and say, God, I am sorry. And how would you lead and guide me in this next season of life, however long you would give me, to, to be equipped to do the work of ministry and to build up your body as part of your lifelong project that you've called me to. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we can never thank you enough for calling us out of darkness into light. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you are working and that you've called us to your work. And so we pray you would show us with fresh perspective how it is you would have us to be engaged in that work, how you would have us then to be equipped for the work that you've called us to engage in. And Lord, that you would deepen our passion to see your body built up into one, one people of one mind and one heart walking together in unity of faith and unity of the knowledge of who you are. We need you to work in us that we might work that out, and we invite you to do so even now and in the weeks and months and even years to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.